The I Love You So Much podcast is proudly sponsored by Hilton. Discover Austin and choose from one of our many brands, including Hilton, Embassy Suites by Hilton, Doubletree by Hilton, Hampton Inn & Suites, and Home to Suites by Hilton. See more, save more. Stay at Hilton. Unlock local experiences at travel.hilton.com. So about 10 or 12 years ago, my husband and I moved to Beijing, China, so he could be a rock and roll star. (laughs) It didn't work out quite the way we thought, but we ended up eating a lot of really awesome food. We had developed this crazy spice threshold. So when we moved to Austin and I would order something um, hot, it would taste mild, which was really surprising. (laughs) So now it's about 10 years later and I'm back to regular mild, hot, medium, and uh, it's been an adventure. I'm Mary Helen Leonard. This is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. This week on the show, we talk to the head of Rooster Teeth Animation, Gray Haddock, and writer Evan Nurses about their work on a new star-studded series, Genlock, that will debut in January. How did this awesome project get Michael B. Jordan and Dakota Fanning, among others, on board this sci-fi anime? Austin's first immersive selfie museum, the FOMO Factory, is here. Creator and Austin local, Rachel Ewens, tells us what it's like to leave adulthood behind and return to childhood by journeying through seven rooms of iconic youthful memories, all while snapping selfies along the way. Ben Milam was a hero of the Texas Revolution, but that's not why you might be toasting him. His descendant, Marsha Milam, created a whiskey in his name, inspired by the beautifully zen distilleries she discovered in Kentucky. Today on the show, she and distiller Marlene Holmes talk about what goes into handcrafted whiskey and gives us pointers on how to drink it. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast. But first, Gray Haddock and Evan Narciss. We spoke to them at this year's big RTX event at the Austin Convention Center about Rooster Teeth's biggest new project, an epic animated series that Gray created and that Evan, a writer on the Rise of the Black Panther comic, contributed to. Here's that interview. Tell us what Gen Lock is, because we're not going to see this until, like, January. Yeah, it'll debut on RoosterTeeth.com in January of 2019, uh, which part of me is, is okay, we've got, we've got a little more time to polish, and part of me is, I just want this thing out in the world. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Gen Lock started as uh, an idea, wow, it's um, two summers ago that uh, we'd been going through about a nine-month pitch process internal to Rooster Teeth. Rooster Teeth, one of the things I love about the company is how open and eager they are to hearing about any new cool idea from anyone that works in the company. And uh, uh, we've been working on a little show called Ruby, and Ruby, uh, we, we, we wanted to spread our wings in terms of the type of offerings that Rooster Teeth Animation puts out. We wanted to make sure that we had, uh, we demonstrate different storytelling styles and we're talking to different potential audience and we're also kind of shaking up our aesthetic and, and doing different things with the, the technology and the approach to animation. And, um, and the company was trying to decide, well, what story do you want to tell next if that's one of the goals? And we also kind of wanted to demonstrate to the world that we're not a one-hit wonder we absolutely didn't understand what we were 
stumbling into backwards uh, with the Ruby audience. Um, but we but we, we wanted to appreciate that and then also say that we can do this again. So, uh, again, we went through a nine-month process, uh, went through a whole bunch of ideas, uh, went through a couple of different rounds of pitching that went to the company-level creative committee, and then they would kind of decide, oh, we love this idea, but this is a not-right-now story. We don't want to pivot quite so differently into certain types of storytelling. That'll be a couple of years from now sort of project. Oh, this one. Oh, you know what? We, we like the beginnings of that story, but um, we should put that one back in development and let it bake for a little while longer. And after a couple of rounds of that, one of the ideas that I had pitched was select by Matt and Bernie and the other creative executives at the company. And we were greenlit to go into early development, which means that we had to kind of come up with a show Bible. Uh, I wrote up the, the description of the world and the character breakdown and the pilot script and a, and a season description with all the episodes and got hooked up with some very talented artists who began to explore what the characters in the world could look like and we put this book together and showed it to them and this is a couple months later they went great you're done with development uh you better get going we want this to be a show as quickly as possible and that was exactly a year ago that we got greenlit to go into production uh it was a couple weeks after that that uh, we announced at rtx 2017 that uh hey congratulations we're following up ruby with this thing called Genlock. We've got nothing to show you yet, <laughs> but uh, stay tuned. See you next year. And and now we're here, and we're going to talk about it tonight at uh, the Rooster Teeth Animation Mega Panel that's happening. Genlock is uh, kind of a western spin on uh, Japanese animated mecha shows. So this is kind of like if you took um, some of your favorite ingredients from uh, Gundam or Full Metal Panic and Ghost in the Shell and a little dash of Akira and, and uh, I, I, again I could spend an hour just rattling off the influences but put all that stuff into a blender and then tried to make a cool big sci-fi idea action story that you know it could also just be a, a live action summer blockbuster if you had the budget for it but in our particular case we're going to animate it and uh, it's going to come out as a eight episode by eh, give or take uh, 22 minutes per ep uh, season. Yeah, starting top of next year. Talk to me, Evan, about the differences between writing for comics and writing for animation. Um, and, and the extent to which that was the difficulty of that dive. It's weird because uh, writing in comics is uh, freezing time. Um, I actually wrote an article on io9. Uh, the headline was things I didn't know about writing comics until I wrote comics. Um, and despite being a critic who's written about comics for like almost two decades, um, if not more at this point, uh, you know, until you like are actually doing the craft, certain things remain like mysterious. So like, you know, the point I just made, writing in comics is freezing time. You, you only really should be showing one action per panel, right? Um, um, you can you can dress that up with different words and 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 um, and the artwork obviously um, can layer on another uh, a bit of meaning um, into what's happening on a particular panel. But uh, really, economy is key there. Mm-hmm. The, the the thing I realized when I was working on stuff for Genlock is that you could do more than one thing. You know, you can <laughs> you you can de- you can describe a scene that has several different things going on. It was incredibly freeing. Um, so that was a great realization to be like, oh, okay, I have to um, 
broaden my um, conception of what's possible in a, in a particular sequence. Um, that said, uh, you know, there are moments when I was writing scenes in the Black in, for Rise of the Black Panther where I was like, okay, I can have the the, the art and the characters' expressions be saying or doing or meaning one thing, and I can have uh, the words, their dialogue, say another. Right, so you can you can create a kind of um, paradoxical like alchemy right mm-hmm. um, I found I, I wasn't able to do that writing animation maybe I'm just not as good as Gray or other people who are more seasoned at <laughs> this it this is exactly what I want to hear uh, uh, um, <laughs> no, but seriously I, I found like okay you have to the, the, the vector of like intentionality um, has to be a lot clear, clearer and stronger and more direct in animation because you, you want to maintain, maintain momentum and, and, and that sense of being pulled along um, um, there's, there, I could slow things down in a comic to um, emphasize certain themes, and you do that still in animation. But I feel like I could really let a moment breathe when I wanted characters to connect to each other or whatever. I, you can't, you can't be that indulgent in animation. I, I felt like, or at least the stuff I've done so far. Yeah, you you control you control the tempo right. a lot more. In, and com- in the, comics, that's definitely true. Yeah, and in 22 minutes, you've got to get from A to B. And, yeah. Uh, make sure you're there <laughs> by the end. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I think Gen Lock is going to be a pretty dense show. There's so many ideas that we're trying to get out per episode and across this first season. This is how this team comes together and really what's going on with their technology and some of the implications of that. And, uh, um, but that's the, the, the balancing act between exposition and action was quite the trick on this one. The, narrative ambition of the show is what pulled me in like I could have said no to this right I can really if it wasn't something that not didn't interest me but but when Gray started talking about what he wanted to try and do and and what he and the rest of the team had envisioned is kind of like the thematic pillars of the show I was really excited by that and then once you start getting the characters particular um, backstories and 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 conflicts with each other like it, it, if there, it felt like there was a lot of meat on the bone um, um, to, to chew and savor. Uh, Gray, as we were leading up to RTX, uh, a lot of the announcements that I was seeing these last couple of weeks have had to do with voice casting for the show. Yeah. Uh, Michael B. Jordan is the lead character. Uh, Dakota Fanning is in it. David Tennant was announced as, as a character recently. That's correct. Uh, how did all that start to materialize? Because it seems like, I guess, once you have one big star in it, like the others start to kind of... Yeah, it, it certainly helped accelerate some things after that. But um, the the way that got started was because uh, Michael B. Jordan actually had no small amount of influence on the early art concept exploration phase for the show, where uh, it was September of 2017 that our art director, Michael Pedro, came on board, and um, one of the first things uh, I wanted to work with him on was we we needed to lock down our lead protagonist and and really figure out his look. I had been able to... um, ask some of the, the, the artists working on another show, Ruby, uh, borrow some cycles from them in the downtime between seasons of that particular show. It's like, hey, you want to do some development on Genlock? And they were able to help me start to do some early exploration. And then it was really time to go ahead and take the ingredients from that stuff that we had discovered that was working and then finish out the rest of the design. And um, what I'd asked uh, Michael to do was... Uh, include as part of the the brief for the stuff I wanted to be developing was and you know I, I what if this character were going to be played by Michael B. Jordan 
in, in the you know big budget live action version of it, then how would that inform um, kind of finishing out certain details about this character? And I would say that there's also certain um, there were certain uh, actors whose performances uh, I loved so much that during the writing process it kind of helped me d- during certain moments of being stuck <coughs> to go ahead and um, imagine what if that particular um, um, actor were trying to interpret this character what would they do with it what would that sound like and Michael was part of that process for me which got me through um, some interesting times on the script writing so when uh, in December of last year when production said okay well it's time to get going on casting who do you have in mind no one said not to start at the very top. So we... Uh, this, was, this was pre-Black Panther. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, exactly. That's something that I wanted everybody... I want to just get to the... I want to shout from the rooftops. People don't understand that we started the conversations with him. This is before Black Panther came out. This was like... Uh, we, we submitted the first passing material like six or seven weeks ahead of its launch. And this was before the subsequent... Uh, the, the memes about the fact that he's also um, an anime fan. Um, that he's, he's also a fellow otaku. So uh, it was the hardest thing in the world to keep my mouth shut <laughs> or my thumb off the tweet button during that phase. But I'm like, but but we're about to tell everyone about the – it's not in reaction to what's going on. Okay, fine. So um, anyway, we, uh, we submitted a package of material to uh, Michael's agency uh, going into the holidays in December, knowing that uh, it's, it's the end of the year. This is this is going to be a mess. I don't know if we're ever going to hear back, and, and the odds aren't great that that the timing is demanding that we kind of start this process right now. And and the, the holidays and the new year came and went. We you know I hadn't really heard anything, but in the middle of January we get a, a message back saying that they had indeed put the material in front of Michael, and that um, the answer wasn't a no. And the, the, the <laughs> sheer the sheer fact that that was the case. Uh, we were ecstatic. Uh, wow, someone's actually talking to us. Uh, we've got people of that caliber that are interested in the project. And um, the, just the process continued from there. They asked to see some more material. We, we built up some more decks and actually began sending over the scripts for the first half of the season. And it was a day right at the end of February where uh, I'd actually taken the day off from work to uh, try and hit another writing deadline when I get a call from our producer for the show saying that, hey, man, um, yeah, so I just got off the phone with the agency and Michael B. Jordan wants to play Julian Chase. And then I was somehow expected to continue writing for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, it's, yeah, no pressure. So after that, I, I learned all sorts of things about myself in terms of uh, uh, whole new versions of writer's blocks are to kick. It's like, oh, no, I, that, that next word sucks. I can't use that. Michael's not going to want to say that. And so yeah, that... If uh, I wouldn't change a thing, the process has been unbelievable. I I still feel like I'm going to dream of on the whole thing. But um, if I had been able, if I could just tweak one thing, if I had just been able to wrap up the scripts first before some of this crazy casting kicked in, then I would have a I would have been a lot less stressed. Well, it's funny because I don't know. I'm probably telling tales out of school here, but whatever. No, uh, uh, when you first told me about David Tennant, I started hearing his character's voice in a totally different way. Mm. And it did make it feel a little bit easier, like, to be like, okay, like, how how this scene would play, like, um, you know, imagining his voice saying it. Um, and, and and the stuff I worked on for, 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 for Chase, like, I mean, totally, it was in, 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 in Michael's voice in my head. The, the, the interesting thing, the weird thing for me is... 
I was in the process of writing a Black Panther miniseries with a Killmonger in it, right? Um, and Kill, his version of Killmonger from the movie did not affect my conception of the character whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, it's again, it's, a, it's like the question that Joe asked before, the difference is, it's like, okay, like, writing Rise of the Black Panther, I had 50 years of history to go off of, and that was like my... The, the reservoir I was I was drawing yeah, from totally. for for that, and I knew I was making some changes to the character of Killmonger, even as he'd been um, portrayed in the comics. Uh, but there wasn't like a real life person <laughs> that I was like, okay, here's what that's going to sound like. Um, but with this, it was like, oh, you know, Chase is going to be doing this in this scene, and you know, yeah, I remember from Creed when he had a moment with a, a character and how he would play that scene or how that might sound. And then that, that actually, I found it helped the writing. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, uh, it's any, any trick that you can bust out that lets you get that first draft out of your head and onto the page. And then after that, then you can go ahead and still see like what's, what's in bounds, what you should you lose. Cause okay, maybe you lost the voice here or there or whatever, but, um, just making your mistakes and getting it, uh, into your final draft file uh, sooner so you can start editing is just going to save your butt in the long run. So You're just going to be screwed when Tennant uh, insists on doing it with a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole new vision for the part. But no, it's been, it's been crazy. I've been um, <clears throat> doing both a bunch of traveling as well as uh, directing remotely over the course of the last month or two. And it is, uh, thank goodness, uh, I can finally start replacing... Uh, I, I recorded all the temp for all the characters. I basically read read the scripts, handed that audio to our editorial staff because um, once we had certain casting opportunities, we had to be very flexible about the approach of production, meaning that normally what we would do is uh, you write the scripts, you then simultaneously start recording, uh, you, you cast and you get the vocal performances at the same time as the director works with the storyboard artist and puts together the equivalent of comic book panels and you mate those storyboards and your audio and you begin to get as close as possible to the final timing that you're going to want to want for that dialogue sure. and and all of that. And um, we had to get going. There was no way to not hit certain milestones with the production. We needed to be in boards, had to have our animatics, needed to be animating by a certain time. But oh, by the way, all these fantastic casting opportunities are now kicking in. Okay, so uh, here's what we're going to do, gang. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to give you a temp version of the audio with how I'm currently hearing everything in my head, declaring sort of an intention of this is the pace and intonation that I'm intending to direct the actors into, and then we'll see what additional magic they bring. And if they do something crazy cool with it that changes our timing, well, then we'll just roll with it. And uh, the poor crew has been listening to, I've never hated the sound of my voice so much, <laughs> uh, have, you know, spent months animating. Can you give us that again, Gray? The, yeah, no. <laughs> I've never. I, I, can I, you say that again I've as never, David Tennant? Right, yeah. Oh, I've never. No. Uh, I, yeah, it's, uh, after a couple of months of everyone having to work with the temp audio, it's finally the case that we're actually hearing these characters talk to each other, and the whole thing's coming to life, and all the paranoia about whether or not this whole experiment was going to work is actually starting to calm down. Well, it's kind of remarkable that the, that the person that you sought out to help write on the series 
like happened to be in Austin as well. So like what, what's been what's it been like having all these creative people? I mean, I don't know that the voice actors are actually coming to Austin, but I mean, what's it been like working on this in Austin with Austin animators and all the people here in town? Oh, I love it. It's um, the sheer fact that uh, I can that, that that we've got this burgeoning animunity and excuse me, burgeoning animation community and immunity and, and immunity. Yeah, and a certain immunity the to immunity. pronunciation, but. Uh, I love the fact that this is taken off here in Central Texas, and uh, we've got 150 people employed at Rooster Teeth Animation just in our studio alone. That Jeez. we have not had to take off for LA or Atlanta or any of their major animation hubs yet. That we're right here in the hometown, able to uh, put together this studio that's working on a half dozen different titles, and our programming slate is growing. We're yeah, we a uh, little bit of perspective. I. Um, I'm a couple of weeks away from my seven-year anniversary being with the company. When I came on board, uh, I was like uh, unofficial somewhere in the, the employee number teens, whatever it was. And uh, in terms of the number of people that were working on the show that the company was founded on, Red versus Blue, and to everyone out there that's saying, oh, you guys make that show? Is it still running? The answer is yes. We just finished season 16. Um, yeah, but when I came on board, it was RVB9. And there were, you know, maybe about 10 of us in the corner that uh, they would pull off of, uh, you know, editing duties and being a camera operator for the live action crew or whatever else you did around the company. And you would spend five or six months making a season of Red versus Blue and then you would go back to whatever else you did around the company. And, um, yeah, to, to grow from that team of about 10, 12 people to, you know, seven years later uh, by by the end of this summer, the permanent headcount at RT Animation will be yeah, 150, and that's not including the additional uh, uh, temporary employees or, or outsourcing that we do. And we're, we're growing the production slate. We're actually going to be continuing to grow over the next year, year and a half. I can't predict what the company's ever going to be up to six months out. Uh, being one of the um, business leaders inside the company you have your 12 month plan your three and five year goals and all that and uh i, I go through those exercises but it, I, I can still never really tell you exactly what we're going to be up to um just even a few months out and th- the only constant at the company is change so uh yeah there's been some crazy big moves over the last several years i think ruby was one of the biggest examples at the time of uh, yeah, you're right. This is the company that you know us for our reverent comedy and and uh, machinima and all that jazz. And um, because the the founders of the company are again open to whatever's really calling us, even if it's not necessarily something perfectly in our wheelhouse, then, then that they're they're that much more interested in diversifying and, and trying it. It's 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 cool. It keeps people working at the company from getting bored. It strengthens the company's portfolio. It it gives the audience something new to check out. And uh, you know, since then, since Ruby started, the company has done their first live action movie. Uh, we've gone into video games. We've you know uh, the convention business <laughs> is still booming. And uh, and and they're not done. There's all sorts of crazy cool announcements on the horizon about just what the company's going to get up to next. Well, Gray and Evan, thank you so much for joining us, and we're, we're looking forward to Genlock. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks for having appreciate us, the support. Guys, yeah, take care.
I Love You So Much podcast is proudly sponsored by Hilton. Discover Austin and choose from one of our many brands, including Hilton, Embassy Suites by Hilton, Doubletree by Hilton, Hampton Inn & Suites, and Home to Suites by Hilton. See more, save more. Stay at Hilton. Unlock local experiences at travel.hilton.com. Inspired by her own childhood, Rachel Ewens has designed an art experience that will throw you back, way back. The FOMO Factory promises to deliver the tastes, sounds, and even smells that bring you back to the best days of your life. We decided to check it out for ourselves. are at the FOMO factory uh, under construction. So by the time you hear this, it will be completed, but we're in the midst of the uh, hammering and the, uh, the putting things up. Yeah. So if you hear some background uh, construction, that's what's happening. But that's we're here with FOMO gets made. Rachel Yoans, mm-hmm. and she is the, the uh, mastermind of this. So tell us what the FOMO factory is. Yeah. So first of all, I want to say what FOMO stands for, because not everybody knows. It's fear of missing out. Um, and it's that feeling, say your friends invite you to an awesome party and you're too tired to go. And then you see all their awesome social media pictures. FOMO is the feeling you get. You wish you'd been there. So that's what FOMO stands for. The FOMO factory is an immersive art space designed for taking selfies. It's got a little bit of theatrical element put into it. Um, we're going to have oversized art. We're going to have cast members that interact with you. There's over 20 selfie opportunities within the FOMO factory. You'll get little tasty treats. And it is themed around a journey through childhood. So it's really going to tug on that nostalgia of, you know, think the MASH games you pay, played when you were little, uh, cootie catchers, toys, lockers, that school dance that you awkwardly danced with somebody <laughs> at. Um, so yeah, it's really a theme that's never been done in one of these before childhood. So we're really excited to, to bring it to Austin. So what, what inspired this? I mean, I know there are some places that our listeners might have heard of. I mean, the only one I had heard of was the Museum of Ice Cream, but apparently this is a big deal, especially in New York and San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so this is a really emerging space. These have really only been around for the past year or two. The queen of them is Mary Ellis Bunn who is with the Museum of Ice Cream and we definitely took inspiration from the Museum of Ice Cream but we kind of brought it in our own way Um, so I I was living in San Francisco um, up until a couple months ago Uh, in San Francisco we have heaps of these we have that lady thing which is a feminist theme one where rather than a ball pit it's a giant pit of breasts Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry what was the address (laughs) Uh, we have one called the Color Factory, which has been a great inspiration to us. Um, we have Museum of Ice Cream. In L.A., there's probably 10 or 15 of these. In New York, there's probably 20. And it really came as a shock to me that there wasn't one of these in Austin. Why Why wouldn't there be? See, it seems like when we get these is during South by Southwest. Yeah, it feels like an activation and, kind of a thing. Yeah, and then it's overload. There's competing, you know, exactly. 50 of them, and you can't go to all of them, and some of them are disappointing. I feel like spread the whimsy around, like, all year. <laughs> also, you know, and I, I love South by Southwest. I'm a tremendous fan, but it's, you know, it's really relegated kind of that tech elite mm-hmm. and the digital people. It's not kid friendly. So really, this is this is all ages. Um, one thing that's really notable to me is that it's alcohol free. Um, I, I drink. I love to drink. It's it's something I enjoy. But I think there's a real lack of 
in alcohol-free spaces for adults to mm-hmm. connect. And I think adults also struggle to be playful and whimsical and mm. have fun without alcohol as an excuse for that. Mm. So a, a real thing we want to do is shake you up, break you out of your shyness, break you out of your adulthood, and, and get you being really, really silly and do it all without alcohol. Well, all the colors, I mean, we're only in one of the rooms that's completed right now, and there's pinata strips on the wall, there's half, there's cupcakes and forks, and all these beautiful, like, presents on the wall. Your co-creator is making a giant birthday cake. There is a giant birthday cake. And the cups and forks are suspended on the wall. Yes. Like, it's like, it's like wallpaper. Like, of- you could take a fork and just, like eat one of the cupcakes. Don't they look realistic, They, do, they totally do. Um, but this is the former hun- headhunter's space. I, I think it was even another bar since then, but it's on Rev- Red River Street. Um, how, tell, tell us how this space sort of served your needs for this particular event. Yeah, so everyone's seen this location. It's just kind of a weird, and you know, it's one of the funniest things whenever I tell people, we're in that old headhunter's location. They're like, really? We're, yeah. we're like catty corner to stubs. We can see it out the window uh-huh. from here, yeah. Um, It's a weird little funky location. It's got a crazy history. It dates back to the 1900s. It's been, I I went through the city papers on the uses for it. It was used as a church for a while. It's been a restaurant. Um, It was headhunters. So we're we're ripping out all this tiki material. Mm -hmm. It famously went through a show called Bar Rescue, where it became a steampunk bar that I think was like a... Oh, the steampunk bar. Yes, metal and lace. It became a steampunk bar briefly. And then it got bought by world-class properties, and it really became kind of nothing. It's been used for South by Southwest and not really anything else. Um, What I really liked about this location, and as you can kind of feel up here, it feels like a house. Mm -hmm. It feels like a home. There are all these little rooms upstairs that I had forgotten existed. Yeah, well, and a lot of people haven't ever been upstairs here, so I think it's got an air of mystery to it. Every room leads to another room, so it feels like a path versus closed doors. Yeah, and I just love this feeling of like you're I'm inviting you into my home um it feels like you're at your you know you're you're visiting someone's house and I I think that's an element to these spaces is there's a certain voyeuristic quality especially with something like Meow Wolf I would also Meow Wolf's a cousin of these sort of installations Mm -hmm. I would consider but I think one thing people love about Meow Wolf is you enter this home that you can peek through the drawer doors and go through their computer and read their newspaper um so this feeling I think people are going to have of not just entering a warehouse space with tilted walls, uh, but to really enter what feels like a home is really mm-hmm. special. And you were telling us as we were kind of going through the, the virtual imaginative tour mm-hmm. <laughs> where we were not seeing it yet, but we're seeing it uh, was things like, you know, toys on the wall that people mm-hmm. can actually play with and doing karaoke together and things like that. It's like, how, how much of it did you want it to be like, hands-on interactive, having fun versus just seeing cool things and taking pictures? Yeah. So, it's interesting. I, I think I'm still even trying to understand this whole selfie thing, and and uh, it is slightly vapid, and it is a little you know self serve. And but to me, this is so much more than selfies. It's an introduction into art and theater. And art, the words art and the words theater are polarizing words. Art is expensive. Art's for rich people. Uh, theater, you got to dress nice to go to a theater. You know, there are these ideas people have about what art and theater is, but people know what selfies are and people know what the value of a new profile pic is and stuff. So to me, I wouldn't describe it as a bait and switch, but it's an easily accessible way into art and theater that people can wrap their head around and understand. So 
I think, um, yes, there's, there's things here. We have pinata walls and we have cupcakes and lockers and all this, and there's things, but what's really the heart of this and what we're in, in the process of right now is hiring. And it's these staff members that are going to play with you. And just like a Disney considers them cast members, we consider them cast members. So in our in our ball pit room, they're going to be wearing a whistle, and they're going to be like a lifeguard, and they're going to remind you not to pee in our ball pool. And uh, yeah, it's, it's Austin; they might need a reminder. <laughs> in our in our school room, they're going to play cootie catcher with you. Um, yeah, they're really our our team members. We're looking for silly people that are going to encourage you to play. So yes. This is a this is a place of things, but you are not here to just look. You were really here to play. Well, going back to the South by Southwest thing, one of the most successful ones we had this year was the Westworld installation. Yes, and I thought what elevated that from the you know the typical South by Southwest thing was the actors, was mm-hmm. the people who were in these roles and making it more of a a vibe and a feeling that you wouldn't get just from just yep. being thrown into a space and oh we'll just walk around and just look and do whatever. Yep. And, yeah. Yeah. No, the people are really the heart of it, and uh, so. I've been going to a lot of events like these over the past couple of years. Um, I've gone to Neverland. I've crawled through tiny hallways in Dante's Inferno. I've gotten inside a shape, shaking airship. I've infiltrated um, a, a Rococo uh, French Revolution party. And, I mean, they're amazing. I, I've done many of these, and it's feelings that I don't think people get to access a lot. Mm-hmm. So to, to stimulate that, and I, this is a huge trend, uh, is these immersive spaces like uh, uh, escape rooms? Escape mm-hmm. rooms have had a really hot had a hot minute. Uh, Disney in their next Star Wars theme park will be incorporating a lot of interactive theater where you'll be invited to kind of go on these journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just like the Westworld, I, I kind of want to unlock for people that you know Westworld's not a f- well, it is a fantasy, <laughs> but but those interactive experiences are not inaccessible they're here and they exist today and and you can be part of them it almost feels like an extension of we've got this video game culture and this instagram culture but these kinds of spaces invite you to just invite you into that and to experience it so that you can make your own memories there rather than just sort of live vicariously through the avatar that you play yeah or the double tap like that you give somebody yeah take this memory with you and i'm a big fan of selfies actually i think that selfies are a far cry from 30, 40 years ago where women were behind the camera taking pictures of mm-hmm. their families and a family, a woman might have three pictures of herself in adulthood. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I would ra- way rather us have 3,000 pictures of ourselves than only have three. So, uh, so Rachel, what's gone into the construction of all this? I mean, you, I, we have a full crew of people here working that yeah. we're seeing doing this and artists and, and artisans and there's going to be a pop-up shop, you know, that uh-huh. you'll be able to buy things. So like, how, how big a crew are you rolling with these days? <laughs> Well, uh, uh, let me talk a little bit about our core team. Um, one of my first acquisitions, I actually found her through Instagram. A lot of this has been done through Instagram. So I, I cruised around Instagram, I lost an artist, and I found Kara Witten. Uh, or pardon me, Kara Witten. Oh, sorry. Kara uh, Witten. Kara Witten is, uh, she owns a site called Kalo Chic. Um, she does DIY and crafts. She works with amazing brands like Mars Candies, Oriental Trading Co., um, Joanne Fabrics. Uh, she has her retail site. Her she has about fifty thousand Instagram followers. As you can see, the crazy colors in here. I I am not a color queen. Kara is a color queen. So Kara was our first team member. Our second team member. I'm sure a lot of Austinites are familiar with the Vortex Theater. Um, 
I used to live in the UT co-ops. I was a, I was a hippie co-op kid. So I actually tapped into my co-op network. It's how I found my lawyer. It's how I found my build manager. So a friend of mine from the co-op works at Vortex Theater and introduced me to Chris Heil, who's our build manager. Um, outside that, you know, we're bringing on a lot of staffers. Uh, I can't, I can't, I can't not ignore, uh, my, my parents have been a tremendous part in this and I, I give a thanks to them for creating a childhood that was so good for me that I wanted to create another childhood. <laughs> so this isn't like a rubbing it in their face for not giving you all these things. No, oh. this is, um, <laughs> much healthier. No, my parents gave me an amazing childhood and it was so good that I, I really, I want to relive it and I want to let other people relive it too. So um, yeah, they're my staff members. Also, it's a family operation, uh, which is great. I love working. Oh, that's with very family. sweet. So people will buy tickets online, and you reserve a time, correct? Yeah, you reserve a time because we really want to. Again, you're trying to take selfies. We really can't have you know. You don't want to have ten people in your way. We don't want to queue to get into the mm-hmm. birthday cake. Um, so yeah, you schedule a time. We're open Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays from about it's. Two o'clock on Thursdays and Fridays till I believe about nine p.m. So. And this starts on what date? September fourteenth. Okay. And well, right now we're running through October twenty-first. Oh, fantastic. and uh, as a person who has a kid's birthday party to plan here in the next couple of weeks, I hear that you're also open to private events. We're open to private events, and also throughout. Again, this is an all ages experience. We're probably expecting a lot of millennials. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I think for millennials and for Zen- or uh, for Gen Z experiences mean more than things you know they really malls are shutting down they they, that's not a place for people anymore they really want to buy into an experience and so that's why i think car really came on board is understanding i i don't just need to sell these things i can create a space for people to experience this lifestyle that my customer has so um yeah it's it's again it's a part of this trend that it's not just about things. People want to buy an experience and they want to buy being part of something. So they're part of this hashtag. They're part of this movement. Uh, it's my personal goal. I want the men of Austin to be sick of seeing girls on Bumble with pictures from the FOMO factory. That's my, like in San Francisco, I've actually had guys tell me on dating apps, they're like, I won't date a girl that has a picture from the Museum of Ice Cream because we all have them. Well, that's a good way to weed them out. Yeah, so I'm, I'm like, I want every girl in Austin having pictures here until like you guys are like, oh, not another pinata wall. Oh. Well, Rachel, we are looking forward to seeing the final product. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Now, uh, where online can people find it? Thefomofactory.com. Thanks for being with us. Distiller and Kentuckian, Marlene Holmes, worked for Jim Beam for more than 25 years and never imagined calling Texas home. But Ben Milam Whiskey, a woman-owned whiskey distillery based in Blanco, convinced her to head south and lay down new roots. Today, with owner Marsha Milam, Marlene tells us why she made the decision to give Texas a try. Marsha and Marlene, welcome to I Love You So Much. Thank you. So I would like to start with you, Marsha. Uh-huh. Uh, you have a namesake in Ben Milam Whiskey. Tell us who Ben Milam is first and then why you got into whiskey from the music business. Okay. Well, first of all, what I, what I usually tell people is that Ben Milam was not my father, nor is he my husband. <laughs> because I do get that. Uh, ben Milam... For those of you who were asleep during Texas history, was a Texas hero 
who died fighting in the Texas Revolution. To me, that's a short-sighted version of Ben because he was a risk-taker, an entrepreneur. He came from Frankfort, Kentucky. He was a colonel in the Mexican Army, one-time friend of Santa Ana's, owner of a silver mine, which never produced silver, um, in Mexico, and just had this flair for life and a zest for life. And I look at all the territory that Ben covered in his 40-some years, and what amazes me is he did all that without a car or a plane. I mean, the way those guys travel back and forth, Kentucky to Texas, Texas to Mexico. Uh, My favorite story about Ben is he was engaged to a young girl from Frankfort, Kentucky, and he left and went to Texas, Tejas in Mexico, and he was gone two years. And when he returned, he had a mahogany table for her and some silver. But since Ben didn't write while he was gone, Mm -hmm. she married somebody else. (laughs) So I always, I understand that because I was raised by a workaholic. Uh-huh. And it's like, just, I always tell the guys, it's like, sometimes you just have to check in. Right. Oh my God. So, so Ben was, uh, I, I'm thrilled to be related to him. The more I've learned about him, the more proud I am. Um, ben did not have children. And I uh, am related to his brother. My got family it. is, my father's family was from Kentucky. Um, and the way I got into whiskey was from the music business is to me, and this is, I believe anyone would tell you, if you're in the music business, you're in the liquor business. Because <laughs> especially in, in Texas, I mean, it's like whiskey, beer, barbecue, and music, and boots. You know, it all just goes hand in hand. And so to me, it was not a strange segue. I, um, I think I mentioned to you earlier I had the absolute honor and pleasure of going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction with Jimmy Vaughn and Double Trouble when Stevie and the band were inducted, and I went as their publicist. And it was an absolute mountaintop experience for me in that industry, and I realized I'm never going <laughs> to... I can't top this. That's it. Did I'm it. done. <laughs> and, Bye. And Bye, so girl. <laughs> the next month, I went to the Bourbon Trail in Kentucky. And when I was there in one of these wonderful old rick houses, that's the size of gymnasiums, only nine stories high, um, full of barrels of bourbon aging, it was so quiet in there, and it was so peaceful in there, and you could smell the wood and you could smell the bourbon, and I realized this is the exact opposite of the way we live today. This is a singular purpose. Nothing is happening here, but bourbon is aging. Right. Can't hurry it, can't make it go faster, can't make it do what you want to do. And I think in that moment I fell a little bit in love with its defiant, independent spirit, and I also fell in love with the culture of Kentucky. Right, right. Now, speaking of the culture of Kentucky, Marlene, you're a Kentucky native and were with Jim Beam for 27 years. That's right. So what I'd love to find out is a little bit of the history of bourbon. We were speaking earlier about whiskey's journey from Kentucky down south to New Orleans and the way it changed while it was in the barrels. This is unknown history to me and I'm sure to many of our listeners. So can you enlighten us? 
Well, it would take a few months for that trip from Louisville, Kentucky, Maysville, Kentucky, to get down to New Orleans. So in that that time, uh, the whiskey would have the opportunity to set in that barrel, gain some color, gain some of the flavoring, the caramel, the vanilla from the uh, from the barrel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so folks like, they, they identified it as bourbon coming from Bourbon County. Right. Kentucky. Right, right. And what's fascinating to me is, as a native, you really grew up with this, I mean, from childhood onward, um, not just bourbon and whiskey in your surroundings, but in your baby bottle sometimes. <laughs> well, well, it's referred to as a hot toddy for adults, but yes, it's been known for, for mothers and grandmothers, you know, if, if they've got a fussy baby uh, with a cold, mm-hmm. uh, to put a little bit of bourbon a little bit of honey and a baby bottle. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of bourbon, parents. Yeah. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Not a fifth. <laughs> yeah. This isn't a medical show. <laughs> so um, now, Marlene, you got into the industry. You were working in UPS before you got into this line of work. How did that opportunity come your way? Well, through a friend of a friend. Um, Booker No was our master distiller. And Booker was known for always wanting to experiment with different things. And one of the ideals he had, we used our dried grain for cattle feed. And he wanted to know if there was another avenue for that dried grain. So he come up with the idea of fish food. Mm -hmm. So he buys like a thousand catfish fingerlings. (laughs) They build a cage. They put these fingerlings in. So they need somebody to feed the fish. Well, that's where I come into the story <laughs> then. And uh, a friend of mine, new Booker, had talked to him about it, knew I lived within you know, a few miles of general vicinity of the distillery, asked me if I'd be interested. And and I, I, I took that opportunity to kind of check the distillery out. I had never been in a distillery before or on the grounds. And one thing led to another, and I and- went to work there and... Now you're a master distiller. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know about ma- – I'm still learning a lot. There's, there's still things to learn about the bourbon business. Now, is it a male-dominated industry? This question, question is for both Marsha and Marlene. Um, would you two say that it's unusual what you're doing, having female leadership in this space, or no? Um, it's, it's changing, when I started in 1990, mm-hmm. absolutely. I can remember uh, seeing a, a photograph in one of our conference rooms. We had a training class, and that photo was a picture of, of the manager and the staff, and there was one female <laughs> in that picture, and there was a, uh, it was a group of 20, 20 people. Right. Nowadays, um, that's changed. There's, other, uh, there's a lot of females in Kentucky right now that uh, are master distillers or head distillers. Getting into the business. Yes. I actually want to pivot to um, Omar for a consumer question. Uh Uh-oh. Omar, sir, are you a spirits drinker? Like, do you have a favorite spirit among all there is to offer? Not just bourbon, whiskey, but um, Uh, vodka, tequila. I'm I'm really easy. Like, I like everything. I mean, there's very few liquors that I avoid. You know, I'm not one of those people that had a bad tequila experience and I'll never drink tequila again. (laughs) I don't have any of the stories like that. Uh, but I like everything. I like bourbon. I like whiskey. I like vodka. I like gin. I like pretty much every. 
you know what? Let's just go Drake, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm all for that. Oh, okay, great. Good. Uh, in fact, why? you know what? Why don't we go do a taste test like right now? Like we will leave leave the statesman premises. Okay. Have a taste test and we'll come right back and talk about it. How about that? Perfect. Wild idea. Right. I know it's crazy, but l- why not? Let's go. Okay. Okay, so we are going to have a taste test with some Ben Milam whiskey. Um, what I've come to understand is distinctive about this particular product is its smoothness. So it's accessible to your lay spirits drinker. You don't have to be a connoisseur necessarily to appreciate this. This is not some like, um, like brand advocacy on my part. (laughs) I happen to like bourbon a lot and find it generally smooth, but let's put this to the test. So, um, Marsha or Marlene, would one of you do the honors of, opening this bottle for us certainly my pleasure beautiful label first of all i'm going to take off the gold medal neck tag simplifying the gold medal that we won at the world spirits competition (laughs) in 2017 and 2018 congratulations thought i'd get that in (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) well done so we're gonna we're gonna drink this neat, and then if somebody wants it, put a splash of water in it. But we feel like to really know what the product is like, what our bourbon tastes like, you should start neat and and real messy. Yeah. <laughs> Omar, this is for you. Okay, Holly, you have yours. I got mine. <clears throat> Marlene, there's one for you. Thank you. And what we like to encourage people to do is nose it first don't stick your nose in it <laughs> but just kind of blow over the glass Absolutely. And, I have my nose right in it yeah. <laughs> that's why that. the ex- experts need to clarify for us <laughs> with, with your mouth open I'm, I'm listeners I want to describe to you what the true experts are doing right now so it's an underhanded grip and it's um, you know about nose about an inch away from the glass and not blowing so much just inhaling it it's fragrant enough to where you, yeah, don't have to have nose directly in. I feel like I'm getting the distinct odor of, of liquor. Odor? <laughs> Perfume. Uh, for, for, no, notes of liquor. Notes, notes of, there you go. Right. Notes of bourbon. And what's so fascinating to me with whiskey is I, I was a, and I still am, a red wine drinker. And red wine, you know how good red wine opens up over time? Mm-hmm. Whiskey does the same thing. Well, to, like, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. As long as you give it, as long as you don't just shoot it and you give it time. <laughs> well, I was going to say I, I was joking, but I, what I really am smelling is is kind of a little smokiness, a little bit like almost um, like a like a rosy, flowery kind of scent. Is that is that unusual? Do I have a weird nose? Everything no. is subjective. Yeah. See, to me, what I smell is like a maple or some kind of caramel, like some sweetness. That might be that, the sweetness that to I'm me smelling, is yeah. the hallmark of bourbon that makes it. Slightly easier to drink than scotch, for example. But if I'm inhaling really deeply, it's almost like a peppery, like a smoky peppery hmm. scent I'm getting. So, okay. So now after all of those adjectives, are we allowed to drink it? Yeah. Have right we properly now? nosed <laughs> yeah. our okay. way through? And you want to talk about how to drink it, Marlene? Uh, yes. Just a, a small taste to start with. Okay. Just and, and hold it in your mouth. Okay. For a few seconds, kind of roll it around. Okay. In, on your tongue, in your mouth, and then swallow Perfect. Here we go. Bottoms up. 
Mm. Okay, so listeners, while Omar is still swallowing, I'm savoring, savoring, savoring his. <laughs> so there's definitely a warmth that you get from mm-hmm. drinking any spirit. A tingle. Yeah. yeah, but this one to me doesn't have that um, like ice squeezing kick that drinking like a gin or even a tequila would have. There's a warmth here that makes it a little bit more tolerable than some harder edged spirits. And I got that cho- that kind of chocolate caramelly yeah. flavor if, more if, from tasting it than from smelling it. Right. Yeah. right. If you hold it in your mouth like that a few seconds, it allows all different parts of your mouth to pick, you know, sweet, a sour, mm-hmm. you know, different uh, tastes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it's recommended to, you know, just hold it a few seconds. And then the second taste that you take, will be even a little bit different, but more fine-tuned. Okay. All right. Now, so now we're now that we're enjoying these um, samples, uh, can we talk a little bit about, um, Marsha, about methods that people would use to drink this? Like, would it be sacrilege to have it over rocks? Would it be just a shame to mix it in a cocktail? Like, how do you recommend people enjoy bourbon in general? You don't want to put this in a Red Bull, probably. <laughs> uh, not really. Um, you can buy something else for that. Um, I like it. I like it on the rocks. And um, a lot of people like it neat. Some people like it with a splash of water. There was an article um, that they proved scientifically water helps bourbon, helps whiskey open up. Uh, Marlene, who is more familiar with the industry than me, says people should be able to drink their whiskey however they want. I like that open-minded attitude. However however you like it. Marlene, do you have a favorite? Say someone just is not ready yet for that straight alcohol experience. Is there some kind of, um, you know, light additive that you would recommend going in there besides water that someone who's newer to this world could still experience and appreciate the character of the spirit? Well, I think water would be the best thing to do, but also... Uh, I will see people at times with, at a tasting or different uh, any place with a shot. We'll we'll just drink the whole thing, and right. that and that's too much. There again, right. you know, you want to ease into it. Take that small sip to start with, and and hold it in your mouth, and uh, and and take it from there. I, I think people rush it too much right. a lot of times when they when they try to drink it for the first time. Okay, all right. So, um, last question to. Um, wrap up the interview, I want to ask about seasonality when it comes to spirits, because I tend to think of summer as your light spirits time, like your vodkas, your gins, like fruity kind of cocktails, and fall to me signals like rich brown caramely cocktails. Is that like, why do we think that? (laughs) Why is that something that we've grown up with? Is it because you can have a hot toddy and you can enjoy these types of spirits warmer? Or what why is it that we associate it with seasons? And give us a good argument for appreciating this on, you know, a hot August 140 afternoon. 140 degree day like today, maybe. <laughs> well, to make us forget our surroundings. <laughs> well, back home, uh, apple cider is is a good drink. There you go. And to heat apple cider and put a shot of uh, bourbon in it or mm-hmm. whiskey in it is, mm-hmm. is wonderful and for cool fall weather. Yeah. There again for the holidays, and this is one of my favorite, is eggnog. With right, Put yeah. Put cinnamon on top with uh, eggnog. Oh, that sounds fantastic. It, it's wonderful. 
Yeah, yeah heated up like, a little bit. It's almost mm-hmm. like I, I saw the Austin East Ciders, uh, the, sp- the spiced cider. The, right. Like, it's too early. It's too early for that. No, totally. it's summer. I don't want that yet. <laughs> I don't know? want that, that warm, you know, like cinnamony, you know, taste in my mouth yet. Mm-hmm. I think uh, because bourbon and whiskey, it does warm you up. You know, you can feel it go down the throat. So I think that's why people equate it more with a fall and winter drink. And I think traditionally that's true. We do see now bourbon and whiskey is so popular that people are still drinking it in the summer. We had Saturday at our tasting room. I don't know how hot it was outside. We had the biggest day we've ever had. Wow. And we were releasing a barrel proof that you could only get a distillery. It was 114 proof, Marlene? 112. 112. 112. And Marlene found it. And I love the way she talks about whiskey because she, she was sampling barrels, she and Jordan. And uh, Marlene said, the caramel in this barrel just jumped up and hugged me. Oh, so, so I also it, like that description. A warm Olaf hug. That, that's bourbon <laughs> right, right there. And so instead of, instead of finishing that or proofing it down, based on her suggestion, we just left it. Keeping exactly it. Exactly as it is put it in a bottle, promoted that some on Facebook, and here it was hot, and this is a high-proof bourbon. We had our best day ever. So I think people appreciate whiskey in the summer. Right, right. Okay, all right, last question, I promise. Um, So the distillery is in Blanco, Texas. How can people go there and visit if they're intrigued enough by this interview to go taste that caramel, to go have that summer bourbon sipping experience? When are you guys open, and how can they do a tasting? Yes, we've got a tasting room that's open Tuesday through Saturday from 11 to 5 p.m. Okay, terrific. Do they have to schedule anything in advance or just walk right in? show up. Okay, great. Sip some bourbon with Marsha and Marlene. Sounds great. And and you can imagine you can get this at your spirit store nearby. Yeah, Yeah. we're in the majority of liquor stores in Austin. Cool. Awesome. Well, Marsha, Marlene, cheers. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank you. We're just going to step outside and finish these up. (laughs) Right, right, Tolly? Right. the moment in our show where we have a toast. This is where we go around the room talking about things that we think you, our listeners, should be into. We've got some special guests back joining us. Say your names, guys. This is uh, Dennis Burnett, from, uh, director of Tacos of Texas. And Mando Rayo, the taco journalist. And awesome. Mando and Dennis will be on a future episode, so stay tuned for that. But for now, they're with us for our toast for this week. Thanks, guys. Uh, okay, I'll kick it off. So I am watching a new show on Netflix called Dark Tourist. Have you guys heard of this what, or what, seen it pop up on your I Netflix feed? I've seen about four minutes of it. Okay, so it sort of fills a niche that Anthony Bourdain left, but the focus isn't food. It's a, I think he's a New Zealand journalist named David Ferrier, and he has a travel show, but it's all focused on quote unquote dark tourism so he's not going to like uh bali or boca raton or things like that he's going to embed himself in a death worshiping cult in mexico or 
uh, tourists soaking up radiation left behind in Fukushima or vampires in New Orleans. Like basically he seeks out the sort of underground line of travel that really does exist, which is people going for um, like dark underbelly tourism. So there's not a set up tourism, but people just have this morbid curiosity about these certain locales. And then he goes there. And what makes this show work is because a it's freaky and interesting, but B he's so funny, but in a really low key way. So whenever he's interacting with his handlers, he just has a personality that kind of adds some buoyancy to the experience. You know. So anyway, I totally recommend dark tourist on Netflix. So yeah, that is my toast. Who would like to go next? Dennis, why don't you go? All right. Well, uh, recently I just got back from a wedding in Brooklyn, and we've all been there. It's about a three-and-a-half-hour flight, and I was scrolling through the Delta movies, and three identical strangers popped up, heard a little bit about it, and then watched the whole thing without falling asleep, and it was fantastic, the whole debate, nature versus nurture. And they're, uh, not to play a spoiler alert, but there is a local celebrity writer who spills the beans on a few things that few things that makes it even better so check it out three identical strangers cool i've heard such good things about that awesome uh mondo yeah it's yours all right well this weekend um i was at an art show so you've all seen the um the stencil art around town that we've had here for years um the guy behind that is federico or he goes by el federico um he had an art show and he does a lot of great pieces around, um, you know, the the Virgen de Guadalupe, the one that's, you know, over by the Tortilla Factory off of uh, East 6th Street. He does a lot of iconic, whether it's um, music or uh, culture-related stencil art. And he'll all actually go to your backyard and stencil that Guadalupe for you. I it's, didn't know that. It's, it's yeah, it's great. He does he you know like the, the the old tower records? Yeah. All that stencil art, that's him too. You know, so it's oh, been around cool. for for years. And you're talking about the Milagro Tortilla Factory on the East Side? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And so so from I want to give a shout out to Federico. Awesome. Love it. Omar, Fantastic. what do you have? Well, I saw a little uh, indie movie you might have heard about um, that um, you know, getting a little bit of attention uh, called uh, "Crazy Rich Asians." Oh yeah! <laughs> Holy crap! Is this, it so? Did you love it? This movie is so fun. And and here's the thing: like it, you know, there's it's making quite a bit of money, which is fantastic. It's got uh, an all Asian cast except for like maybe the first two minutes of the movie, and uh, you know it, that's fantastic and great and and gay you know representation. But it feels like it's it's almost become like homework to go see it as far as like, you know, we have to support, you know, this efforts and we have to make sure that this movie does well. Don't go see it for that. Go see because it it's just awesome. It's just a really fun, uh, frothy, great, beautiful to look at movie. It's just so fun. It's like uh, it's the perfect sort of summer rom-com, you know, bright colors and amazing food and genuinely funny jokes. And like it's just a really fun ride and great movie. And you know, yes, it's important that we support this movie. It's important that this movie do well, but go see it because it's just a good movie. It, I had such a blast watching it. It's yeah, fantastic. I think, well, I also think the timing of it is important too, not just because it's summer, but I I feel like we're all just craving some lightness and sweetness mm-hmm. right now. And it's it seems like it's exactly funny that. and bright and, and just, you know, you, the movie 
I had just eaten like a gigantic meal before I walked in to see this movie. <laughs> I saw it like an hour after I ate this gigantic dim sum meal. And then I'm hungry again watching the movie. I'm like, this, this food is amazing. I want all this food on the screen. Uh, so just, I mean, this sometimes when movies come out and, and you know, they're held to this like cultural importance. Yeah. It's like you start resisting seeing it. Cause you're like, oh, I don't so uh, That's me and Harry Potter. Yeah. Not the cultural like, importance like, thing. Like, but oh. this sometimes the bandwagon is so like weighted down that I like, refuse it. Yeah. When you feel like you have to go see a movie because yeah. you're expected to, it's like, don't I mean don't go see it for that reason. See it just yeah. because it's a you will genuinely enjoy this movie. If you have a pulse, you will like this movie. <laughs> Even if you're not into romantic comedies, then see it for the other reasons. But it's it is really just I had such a good time watching it and I want to go see it again because it was just it made me happy. Oh, awesome. Well, Mondo, Dennis, Omar, thanks. Great toast, everybody. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That's our show. She's Addie, he's Omar, I'm Tolly. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This podcast is brought to you by Hilton Austin. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your pumpkin spice whatevers. Until next week, we'll see you catching one of the few last summer swims at Deep Eddy before fall takes over.